Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, we come before you and I don't think there's a, a follower of you here that wouldn't say, as the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And Lord, we all have hearts that tend to wander from you throughout the week, throughout our lives. Lord, we pray for all of our hearts this morning that you would draw us back to you, that you would take those who are running from you, cause them to run to you, and then have them run for you in mission. Lord, we pray that you would captivate our hearts by the grace that you have shown Jonah and us through your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we're looking at Jonah, we're also looking at God's global mission, his mission to the nations. We're calling the series, uh, Finish the Mission. And I'll have some stuff for you at the end, some next steps that you can take to kind of develop God's heart for the nations. God is a missionary God, and we are naturally a very non-missionary people. And what we're praying is that God would give us his heart for the nations. Um, What happened last week, uh, as you guys will probably remember, is that the Lord told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Nineveh would have been 500 miles um, northeast of where he was from Israel, so northeast, 500 miles in what is present-day Mosul, Iraq. He was supposed to go there, and what he does is he decides that he is not going to do what God called him to do. He rejects God's mission, and he heads out on a trip that's 2,000 miles southwest. Okay, so he goes in completely opposite direction. He's trying to get 2,500 miles away from where God wants him, and God doesn't let him go. Um, and though this is called the book of Jonah, it's a story about Jonah, it's really a story about God. I mean, in this, in this book that's only four short chapters, you'll see that there's 39 mentions of God's name. And most of the time, the mention of God's name is his covenant name, Yahweh. You'll see in your Bible when it says Lord and it's in all caps, that's Yahweh or Jehovah. That's God's special covenant name that he gave to his special covenant people when he made a relationship with them. It's a special name for him. And what this is, guys, is it's a story of the rugged grace of Yahweh. Um, It's a story that shows us that God's the kind of God that makes a covenant. He makes a promise with his people and he commits to them unconditionally to show them never-ending grace. Uh, grace is God's favor to those who deserve his disfavor. We all deserve God's disfavor. But if we will trust in Christ, he makes a covenant with us whereby he promises forever to give us never-ending grace. God's the kind of God, Yahweh's the kind of God that never stops pursuing his wayward people. Isn't that awesome? Do you feel wayward? Do you feel like a person that has trouble staying focused and tracking with God and staying on the road? He loves his wayward people, and he'll pursue them with rugged grace. But it is rugged. I mean, this story, guys, what follows here is a rugged story of God's grace. There's a violent storm. There's a fracturing ship. There's lost cargo. There's human sacrifice. There's drowning. There's gastric acid. There's vomiting. I mean, this is a story that's very rugged. It's very intense. It's a, it's a story that shows us that God is not opposed to breaking things to rescue his people. Um, and and it's, it's an uncomfortable story in a lot of ways. We're going to see God's rugged grace to the sailors in this story, and we're going to see God's rugged grace to Jonah. First, to the sailors. We're going to see how God saves these sailors, but first I want to show you that like, even before God saved these sailors, you can see God's grace in their lives. You can see what's called common grace in their lives. And where do I see that? Well, I see that in the fact that these sailors are more compassionate towards Jonah than he is toward them. 
I mean, here you've got the prophet of God. He's supposed to be the one close with God. And you've got these pagan sailors, and they show more compassion. Where do I see that? Well, I see that in the fact that Jonah's told to pray for them. He doesn't. Jonah knows he's the reason for this storm destroying their ship and threatening their lives. Doesn't confess it. Um, Even when he tells them to throw him in the water, that's not heroic. I'll show you that in a little bit. What he needs to tell them when they say, what could we do to you to make the storm stop? Turn the boat around. Okay, there's a very simple solution to this problem, but he won't do it. Jonah doesn't care anything for the sailors, but these pagan sailors will risk everything for him. They, they cast lots, which are like dice. They figure out it's him. They should be super angry. They should be more than willing to kill him. And they're like, no, 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 we don't want to throw you in the ocean. They start rowing harder for this guy that they don't know. And what does that show us? Is these guys are more compassionate than Jonah. Have you guys ever met non-Christians that are far more compassionate than you? more loving than you, maybe a more loyal friend than you are, uh, maybe more faithful or harder worker than you are, maybe a better parent than you are. I have lots of them. What explains that? I mean, Scripture's full of this, by the way. You think of the story of Jacob and Esau. I like Esau way better, okay? You see the story of Jacob and Esau. Remember, Jacob cheats his brother. He runs off. Finally, he goes, I got to return. And so he goes to return, and he sends all these gifts ahead of him to kind of soften Esau up. He's like, Esau's going to kill me, but I'm going to give him gift after gift after gift. And then what happens when, when Jacob finally arrives for Esau? Esau tears up, hugs him, fully forgives him. Then what does Jacob do? Ditches him. He's all, hey, let's go meet up in town over here. He's like, oh, yeah, catch you later. Shh, ditches him. Isn't that amazing? I mean, Esau is a far better person in those stories than Jacob is. What explains this? That sometimes non-believers are, are, are better, behaving better than we are. Well, a couple things. One is you've got to remember that salvation is by grace, not by our own goodness, right? Uh, Ephesians tells us that, that we are saved by grace, through faith, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. Now, that grace does transform us, but that transformation is a process, right? And there are a lot of failures in that process. Would you testify to that? right? And when we look at Jonah's life, we are looking at him in a particularly bad point in his life. Wouldn't you agree? One would hope, right? And so, and we have those too. Maybe some of you had that this week, and you just think, oh man, my people at my work, you know, you know, my neighbors, what they must think. You know, here I'm a Christian, I've been behaving like this, right? The other reason why non-believers sometimes uh, behave better than believers is because of God's common grace, Common grace is a grace that God extends in the lives of people who don't know him. And it takes a few different forms. God's common grace takes physical forms. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount when he said that that God causes the the rain to come down on the just and the unjust. God causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. God gives his gifts, and if you're not a Christian here this morning, God has blessed you in massive ways, even though you're not following him, in all sorts of ways, relationships and things like that. God also has blessed, blesses non-Christians with the grace um, intellectually and creatively. I mean, if, if, you know, some of you guys are like, oh, you know, I'm looking for a plumber. Uh, do you know any Christian plumbers? It's like, I don't ever ask that question. I'm like, do you, you know a plumber? I want a good one. You know, like, you know, the Christian might be the good one. It might not be the good one. We're blessed every day, guys, massively by the common grace that God puts in the lives of non-Christians through science, technology, medicine, music, literature, the arts. Have you guys ever read uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the real one, not the cartoon one? Amazing, penetrating insight into how sin works in our hearts. The author is not a Christian. God's common grace causes us to be blessed in countless ways um, by non-Christians. God's common grace also extends morally. 
God restrains sin in the lives of non-Christians. He, it says in Romans 2 that he's written his law in the hearts of non-Christians. He has given them a conscience. And those things cause people that don't even live for God to live lives that are far better than one would expect without a relationship to God. And so when we see that in the lives of non-Christians, we should enjoy it first. We should thank God for it. And we should affirm them. I don't know if you guys do this, but it would be a very good idea for those who are in your lives that aren't believers, and you see things in their lives that you see are are God's work in their lives, even though they're not a believer, affirm it. I did that this week with one of my coworkers. I said, uh, you know, I texted him, and it was mushy, you know, sometimes I send him a mushy text, and I was just like, I thank God for you. You're such a gift to me from God, and, you know, I kind of told him why. And he texted me back really awkwardly, you know, because he's an atheist. And he's like, okay, that's awkward, you know. But I do that fairly regularly with him because I want him to know that I see he is a gift from God to me, even though he lives in rejection to God. And so you might ask, and then the other thing we should do is we should share the gospel with people like that as well, right? And you might think, well, won't that confuse the gospel if you're saying, you know, if you're saying the goodness that's in their lives and you're thankful for it and you're saying those kinds of things and then you turn around and you say, but you're a sinner and need Christ? There's no contradiction there, guys. And the way I think about it is this. There's, there's a horizontal righteousness and a vertical righteousness, okay? So there's plenty of people in your lives that aren't believers and horizontally are maybe the best neighbor you've ever had you know, or one of the best friends you ever had, or, or somebody that's just been so compassionate, so good, so loyal to you. And you can affirm that on a horizontal level. That is real righteousness, me to you, and it's something that I can rejoice in. And we can still say at the same time, though, that vertically, you're a sinner in trouble with God, because God's standard is perfect righteousness. And, and also God's standard is that we would trust in him, that we would relate to him, that we wouldn't live in rebellion to him. And so we can do both. And I think, actually, You know, commending someone's horizontal righteousness helps when we say, but you're a sinner like I am, and we all need God's grace. So there's no superiority here. We all need God's grace. But the amazing thing, guys, is that the Lord doesn't just give these sailors common grace. I believe he shared with them his special saving grace. And we see that in the progression of their fear, okay, in the progression of their fear. First, they have this superstitious fear. You see it in verse 5, chapter 1. It says, the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his own God. They have no idea who's doing this. It's a superstitious fear. They're crying out to whoever they can cry out to. It's very much like we see in our common culture, you know, that people just try this God or that God, right? It's a superstitious fear. But then God transitions them to a fear of Yahweh, a fear of the Lord. Take a look at verse 7. It says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, which is kind of like rolling dice to figure things out, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So the lot was cast, and it fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? That's convicting. Um, where, where do you come from? What country are you from? What people are you from? And, 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 uh, and Jonah said, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And the people were, the men were very afraid. Because they believed in like local deities. You might have a God of the sea and you might have a God of like the mountains. You might have the God of this valley. He's like, so this God I'm afraid He's the God of the heavens that made all of it. And they're like, what have you done? <laughs> Isn't that great? They're like, are you kidding me? What were you thinking? You know, these sailors are just blown away. They know who to be afraid of now. And it says they're exceedingly afraid. The Hebrew says they feared a great fear, right? They're terrified. And now they know who to be afraid of. Now they've transitioned from a superstitious fear to a fear of the Lord, a fear of Yahweh, which Proverbs says is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of salvation, too. 
to know who you should be afraid of, to realize why you should be afraid, because you're a sinner before a holy God. And then I believe that that transitions in verse 15 to a saving fear. Take a look at it. It says, so they hurled Jonah in. There was a little bit of, I'll talk about that in a moment, but he says, throw me in and the sea will get better for me, for you. They throw him in. The sea ceases from its raging. And the men were feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Jonah drops into the, into the storm, into the sea, and as soon as his head drops below the surface, it's whoosh, completely calm. Creepy calm, right? It's the kind of calm that, like, after you've been in a really noisy environment, your ears are still ringing, right? And they're terrified of what happened here. And it's that whole kind of terror. You have that feeling like when you, you maybe you look down at something, you look up, and you almost got in a car accident. You know that feeling of you just narrowly escaped a car accident? And there's that wave of, like, what if? (laughs) What if I didn't look up a second ago, you know? There's that wave of fear and then that wave of joy. Yeah, but it didn't happen. But it could have happened, but it didn't, you know? And you get that wave of fear and joy over and over again. That's what they're feeling. And it says here that in the calm, though, of the storm, that they made sacrifices of thanksgiving to Yahweh and made vows to follow him. I think these guys got saved. This is not a foxhole conversion. This isn't during the storm. They're saying, oh, if you'll save me, I'll you know, become a missionary for you, or I'll give my life to you. It's not that kind of thing. The, the, the danger's passed, and they're making sacrifices of thanksgiving and making vows to follow him. I believe these guys got saved. I believe we'll see them in the world to come. This isn't a foxhole-type conversion. So the fear of the Lord turned into a solid trust in the Lord. And that's a part of every one of our conversions, guys. You know how Amazing Grace says it? Amazing Grace says, it was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Isn't that awesome? Superstitious fear, fear of the Lord, saving fear, fears relieved. And there's a beautiful irony here, guys, because Jonah doesn't want to have anything to do with God's mission to save a pagan nation, right? And in his rebellion, he saves a whole boat full of them. Right? And it's like, it's like he just can't win on this one. Uh, guys, no one will stop God's global mission. Jonah learned that in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, salvation belongs to Yahweh. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Only the Lord can save, and he will save whomever he wants, whenever he wants. It is our, um, it is our joy and our duty to be a part of him uh, saving people from every tribe and nation and people and language. But guys, we will never stop him. Our disobedience will not stop him. His mission is unstoppable. He will finish his mission. And in this story, guys, we see that Yahweh is sovereign. He controls all things. He controls the storm. He controls the sea creature. Later on, he's going he's to control a scorching east wind. Later, he, he controls a plant. He even controls a worm. The only person he isn't controlling right now, it seems, is his prophet. But that's going to change. So look at the rugged grace, guys, to Jonah. As the sailors are moving further and further towards the Lord, Jonah's drifting further and further away, isn't he? Jonah won't pray. He won't confess. He won't turn back. And I want to make the case here, guys, that he would rather die than obey the Lord and finish the mission. He would rather die. Please don't see Jonah's request to be thrown in here as somehow he's accepting the consequences. Like, well, it's my fault, so throw me in. I don't think that's what's going on here. I also don't think that he's being heroic. I don't think he's saying, well, you know, I'll die for you. No, Jonah knows exactly what he can do to save everybody on that boat. He knows what Yahweh wants. Yahweh wants him to go northeast. (laughs) If they turn the ship around, they will get the best winds and the calmest seas they've ever seen, right? But Jonah, guys, it's a dark story. He would rather die than obey the Lord. 
You know, and I told you guys last week, this isn't a cute story. This isn't a cute story like Noah's Ark isn't a cute story. It's a dark story because you wonder, like, could someone drift from the Lord so much that they would rather die than obey him? They can. (laughs) That's what happened here. So what does the Lord do? Does he go, yeah, I'm just going to nuke that guy and pick somebody else? He doesn't, right? He doesn't let him drift off to Tarshish, does he? What does he do? He pursues him. Yahweh is a covenant-keeping God that doesn't let his people go. And God is the kind of loving father, guys, that disciplines his kids to bring them back to their senses. Um, In Hebrews 12, it says, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And then he gives this example. Besides this, we all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. And it says, then Jonah could relate to this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. That's in Hebrews 12, talking about how God disciplines us. He doesn't let us go, and he will use painful, difficult things to bring us back. And praise God for that. Like, we need that, right? We're prone to wander. And guys, the book of Jonah is probably the best, most graphic example of God disciplining a person in all of Scripture. I mean, this is a graphic example. And that's how Jonah saw it. If you look in chapter 2, verse 3, Jonah saw this whole exchange as God's corrective discipline, getting him back on track. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says this to the Lord, you cast me into the deep. Okay, like the sailors did it, because no, 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 you're behind this. (laughs) I know, Lord, that you're behind all this. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. The waves surrounded me, and your billows passed over me. Jonah thought, guys, that he would rather die than obey God and finish his mission. That's what he thought. But when he landed in that water, and he started to sink, and he started to drown, he had second thoughts. You know, once he actually started to die, he changed his mind, which I wonder how often that happens, you know? But the Lord says here, but he says, listen in chapter 2, how Jonah describes his story. So here, this is after, after the fact of him almost drowning, he's praying to the Lord and he's retelling his story. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 1. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. And the floods surrounded me and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waves closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up out of the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. What part of the Old Testament does that sound like? It sounds exactly like the Psalms, you know, and I realized that this, this time, I've studied this a bunch of times, but I realized that sounds exactly like the Psalms. You guys realize that Jonah lived 200 years after King David. He would have had access to King David's old songs, the Psalms, and he must have soaked in the Psalms such that when his time of distress came, they were his songs. He, he, he took those songs and they came from him, and I want to ask you, in your time of distress, do you sing forth the Psalms? You will if you store them in your heart. If you'll store the psalms in your heart, they'll come forth from you as well. 
And so until this sea creature swallows up Jonah, Jonah's sure he's dying. Look at verse 2. He says, out of the belly of Sheol. That is the place of the dead, the realm of the dead. He goes, I was basically dead when I, when I, when I called out to you. Chat, uh, verse 3, he says, the waters closed over me to take my life. And he talks about like kelp wrapping around his head. I mean, this is a guy drowning. And keep in mind, the Jews were not a seafaring people. The Jews were not a scuba diving people. The Jews were not a swimming people, okay? They were terrified of the sea, and he's in here, and he's dying. It says in verse 6, I went down, this is great, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. It's as if it's a jail, you know? It's as if it's a, the gates of, of death are closing in over him. And I think, guys, that Jonah believed that he was dying abandoned by God. You know, Jonah didn't mind abandoning God and running to Tarshish, but when he falls in the water and he starts drowning, he's convinced, I believe, that, that he's been abandoned by God. Here he is dying as somebody abandoned by God. And you can hear the images of divine judgment. Look at verse 3. The flood surrounded me. The flood. That has very strong judgment-type feel to it. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And, and it says in verse 4, I'm, I was driven. I felt I was driven away from your sight. But of course, Jonah hasn't been abandoned. He's being rescued. <laughs> he's being rescued in a very rugged way. But he's being rescued. The Lord disciplines his kids. What felt like God's judgment was really God's deliverance. And it worked, right? Jonah hits rock bottom. He hit rock bottom like literally <laughs> at the bottom of the ocean. And he hit rock bottom spiritually as well. And he's terrified and he calls out to the Lord. Verse 2, I called out to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I, in the belly of Sheol I cried out and he heard my voice. This is the first time, guys, that Jonah prays in a really long time. How about you when you're wandering from the Lord? Prayer life? Not much, right? This is the first time he prays in a really long time. This is the beginning of a return to the Lord. And the Lord rescues Jonah from drowning in a very amazing and slimy way, right? In verse uh, 17 of chapter 1, it says, The Lord, Yahweh, appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, I'm probably going to disappoint you, okay? I'm going to dis probably disappoint you because I'm not going to tell you what kind of sea creature it was. And it's even more disappointing because I'm a veterinarian and maybe I'd be more skilled at telling you what kind of creature swallowed Jonah. But I'm not going to tell you that because, you know, I'm not going to tell you that a sperm whale has a large enough throat to swallow a human being. I could tell you that, but I'm not going to tell you that, right? I'm not going to try and diagnose who the, what kind of animal this was that swallowed him because the fact of the matter is Jonah very was very unlikely to know himself, Okay? He's drowning. He gets swallowed by something slimy, right, and, and, and envelops him. And then it's very unlikely that right after he's vomited up on the beach, he turns back and he goes, hmm, you know, based on the uh, dorsal fin anatomy of this creature, it must be uh, Festerus macrocephalus. This is clearly a sperm whale. No, he doesn't know what it is. I mean, this isn't a time when you're going to take a real detailed observation and draw a picture, right? He gets swallowed while he's under the water, and then he gets not just like released from the mouth. It says he got vomited out. He is violently expelled from the creature's mouth. And so the Hebrew word here is just dag. It just means sea creature. That's probably the best thing we could say. Could it be a whale? It could be a whale. Could it be a whale shark? It could be a whale shark. Could it be some other kind of shark? It could be. Could it be some creature we don't even know what it is? Yes. Okay, we don't know what it is, but it's a, it's a creature. Nor am I going to tell you guys stories about how people in history have survived inside of whales. 
Okay, this is a fun thing Christians like to do in these moments is say, well, you know, in 1926, off the coast of Norway, and they tell this story, right? The reason I'm not going to do that, guys, is because it's clearly miraculous for somebody to survive three days inside a sea creature. I mean, I heard people say crazy stuff like, well, whales keep air in their bodies to stay. It's like, no, no, they don't keep enough air in their stomachs to keep people alive. Okay, that's not where we're supposed to go with this. This is clearly a miraculous event. And it doesn't help us from miraculous events to somehow explain how they happen naturally. You guys understand that? Like, so, okay, this is a supernatural thing. Now let me explain how it happens naturally. Like, there's no point in that, right? And so this is a miraculous thing. And, and I think the more important thing, guys, is to ask yourself, do you believe that God can intervene supernaturally in this world? And, and some people don't believe that. And for them, the entire scriptures are going to be a problem. And for other people, it's not a problem to believe that God is intervening miraculously in this world. It's interesting if you look at statistics of people, just of our culture, to say, do miracles happen? Do supernatural things happen? Most of our culture actually believes they do. Um, I believe they do. Um, I believe they do mostly because there's a historical event that happened in history, we celebrated a couple weeks ago, where Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And if God does that kind of thing, if he resurrects people from the dead, then then keeping somebody alive in in a sea creature is not hard, right? The other thing to see here, guys, is that we want to make sure that we're not so obsessed with the sea creature that we miss the real drama. The real drama is not what's going on inside the sea creature, but what's going on inside of Jonah. God is saving his rebellious prophet. And and to summon a sea creature and to keep somebody alive in it is easy work. But to save his rebellious people, that costs him his son. And so let's see what's going on in here. Take a look in chapter 2. We have a very intimate picture of what God's doing in Jonah's heart. What God's doing is smashing Jonah's idols. Take a look at verse 8. Jonah says this, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. You might think that he's like talking about the sailors and the Ninevites. He's not talking about that. That word steadfast love is a Hebrew word that's, that's pronounced hased. And hased is Yahweh's covenant care for his people. His special loving kindness towards those who are in covenant with him. And so when he's talking about people forsaking God's hased, his loving kindness to go after idols, he's not talking about pagans. Who's he talking about? It's him. Jonah's the one that's been worshiping idols. Which shows us, guys, that idols are not just physical objects. Idols can be things of the heart. Idols are anything we value more than God. Sin is always an exchanging of the loving kindness of God and what that can do to our hearts for what idols can't do for our hearts. Sin is always an exchange. It's a trade. It's a trading the hope we have in God for idols. All of our defiance to God stems from trading him for idols. And they can be things like security, comfort, right, control, um, pleasure, approval of other people. There's these things, and they all vie for our attention. They all vie for our desires, and we want to put our hope in that instead of putting our hope in God. And like Jonah, guys, our idols hinder us from finishing the mission he's given us, right? You think about whether you're called to go, like the Vandenbergs went, for a time. Maybe you go for a year. Maybe you go for four years. Maybe you go for 10 years. Or maybe you're called to send. You know, we're going to have Lorian come next week, and she's going to talk about her plans to go to the Middle East next year. Maybe you're called to send. But how do these things get in the way? Idols of security, right? Oh, financial resources, I need to be secure. Idols of comfort, idols of pleasure, idols of approval and control. These things were vying for Jonah's attention. How do we break free from them? It's very hard to break free from, it's easy to smash a physical idol. How do we smash a spiritual one? 
And, and, and the way we do it, guys, is that if, if idols are our way of trading the loving kindness of God for something else, then what we need to do is look at what we've been trading. We need to look at the loving kindness of God. We need to see the Lord's covenant love fresh. His pursuing love. Look how he pursues Jonah. Look how he's pursued you throughout your life. His rescuing love. His dying love. Did you know that Jonah is the only prophet that Jesus compared himself to? He's the only prophet that Jesus ever said, I'm like, I'm like that guy. Right? This is what he said in Matthew 12. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against this generation and condemn it. For they repeated... they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and then listen to this, but behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says, I am the greater, greater Jonah. I'm better than Jonah. I'm what Jonah even weakly pointed towards. Because guys, remember, Jonah would rather die than obey God, but Jesus would rather obey God than live. Jonah offered himself to die to avoid finishing God's mission. Jesus offered himself to die to finish God's mission. Jonah came to, to the very verge of death, right, by drowning. Came to the very verge of death, started to taste death. Jesus drank up death completely on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus, at the end of his time there, drew up death into his lungs and died so that the sting of death would be removed from us. He swallowed up death forever on the cross. He took away its sting. Jonah, although he felt like he was dying abandoned by God, Jesus died truly abandoned by God. Do you remember what he said? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was taking our place and enduring true abandonment um, by God. I mean, you can read chapter 2 and Jonas' experience there and see that Jesus' experience on the cross was that but for real. It's a pointer. It's a pointer to Jesus. It's as if Jesus saw the storm of God's judgment, right? It's his judgment too, because Jesus is Yahweh. It, the storm of God, it's as if he saw the storm of God's judgment coming for you, the storm of God's judgment that you deserved. And you know what he said to the Father? He said, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, that it'll be quiet for them. Jesus is that true replacement for us. And if you trust in Jesus as your Savior, you'll never have to face the storm of God's judgment for your sin. If you'll turn to him, the, the storm of God's judgment will turn into the calm of his said, his loving kindness. And that's all you'll have for your whole life. And we're not, we're not going to want to forsake, guys, that loving kindness for idols when we really see it and we're really satisfied by it. But, of course, Jesus didn't stay dead, right? One other thing that Jesus said is, just like Jonah uh, was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so I'll be in, in the grave, Jesus, who truly did die, three days later emerges as he rose from the dead, truly alive. And so what do we have here? Where do we leave it here in, in chapter 2? We leave here that Jonah has experienced, guys, a fresh experience of the Lord's said, a, a fresh experience of the Lord's loving kindness. Look at verse 9. He says, But I will, with the voice of thanksgiving and sacrifice to you, I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then look at this. And then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on dry land. I love that, like, tender ending, right? When the lesson is learned, the sea creature vomits Jonah out. I love what Spurgeon said about this whole thing. Spurgeon said this. He said, Jonah learned great theology in a very strange college. Right? <laughs> Haven't we all? I, I, don't we all have stories of the strange colleges that the Lord has taught us in? You know, maybe it wasn't something like that. It involved gastric acid in the stomach and stuff. But he's taught us in strange colleges, guys. Jonah's back on mission. Kind of. We're going to see in chapter 4 that Jonah's repentance has a long way to go. But he's back on mission. He's putting him back there. 
The story of Jonah, guys, is an incomplete story when it comes to Jonah himself. He's a mess all the way through. The the final message in this chapter 4 is actually on Mother's Day, which is kind of inconvenient because it's a story of a prophet who's bitter with God and just not in the place that he needs to be, and it ends that way. The story of Jonah is a very incomplete story when it comes to Jonah himself. And guys, I find that actually really encouraging, though. Because what it tells me is it tells me that Yahweh will finish his mission as he's finishing us, not after he finishes us. Sometimes we think, like, you need to be finished, then you can be put on mission, and then you can do things for the Lord. Yahweh is finishing his mission as he finishes us. So what are the next steps? Real quickly, what are the next steps? Next step would be, have you put your hope in the Lord? Have you put your whole hope, have you handed your whole life to Jesus? Have you trusted in him for that loving kindness, that covenant love that has said where he'll never let go of you? Have you turned from your idols and trusted in him? If you haven't, please do that today. Call to the Lord. Read Jonah chapter 2. It's a great prayer of repentance. And call out to him to save you. You know, just as he was sinking in the bottom of the sea, you're sinking in your own sin uh, under God's condemnation. And yet he offers you rescue. If you'll come to him. So do that this morning. There's no reason for anyone to leave those doors not knowing for sure if the Lord has that relationship with them. And, and if you have done that and you haven't been baptized, get baptized. Next Sunday we're going to have a potluck and we'll have an opportunity to get baptized. If you've not been baptized, talk to me today and we'd love to get you ready for that. And then thirdly and lastly, have you embraced God's global mission? That's what this is about. This is the next four weeks about God's global mission. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And that means not countries. It means people groups. There's 11,310 of them roughly. Okay? People groups. And he says that the gospel will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. Okay? The mission that God has given us is clear and it's completable. We actually, and the wild thing is about that verse is he says, when the gospel's preached to all people groups, Christ will return. You guys realize that? This is a completable mission. This is something that if the church got serious about it, could complete this in our lifetimes, triggering the second coming and the kingdom coming on earth. So, I mean, you know, if you got something more important, like, Feel free. No, I'm just kidding around with you. But you know what I mean? This is amazing, right? This is something that we know uh, can happen. According to the International Mission Board, there's roughly 11,310 people groups. These are groups within which um, the gospel can be shared without major language or cultural barriers. So um, these are different people groups that we need to reach with the gospel. 6,400 of those groups are unreached, meaning there's less than 2% Christians in them. Um, and on your sheet there, there's an app. It's called the Unreached People of the Day. And you can look through that each day and pray for a different people group. This week, the Japanese people were in there. And I didn't realize this, but the Japanese are an unreached people group. hundred and Almost 121 million unreached people. There's less than 1% Christians. And so when you think about missions, you, you know, a lot of you guys think you're like going to be Dr. Livingston or something in the jungle with a funny hat and stuff like that. Like, that's urban ministry, right? That's something um, which you ban. So 6,400 uh, of them are unreached. Of those, 3,100 are unengaged. It means there's no active missions to that group. 3,100. But we saw last week that that's not a big number for the number of churches. If you take the population, if you take all the churches in the world, there's actually 1,500 churches for every unengaged people group. 
Like this is something that can be done. This is something that, it's a clear and completable mission. Now, many of those people are in hostile areas, but it can still be done. Next week, Lorian's going to come, and she's going to share about how she's um, set up with Wycliffe and getting training, and she's planning on leaving next year, if she can get the support, to go to a place in the Middle East that I can't disclose, but to work among the Kurdish people. So she's going to live in a Muslim country in the Middle East, ministering to Kurdish people so that they can translate an Old Testament for them. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that rugged? That's awesome. And, it, and it's probably pretty close to where Nineveh was, you know, where she's going. Um, so I've got a couple things for you to do. One is that there's that sheet that has kind of next steps that you can take. But I would ask you one last thing, which is, have you laid yourself out before the Lord and asked what part should I play in God's global mission? Whether that's going and sending, and I love what they're talking They went for a while. They're sending now. Um, we'll have an opportunity to send Lorian. We have Holly, who we've been sending. Um, there's, there's so many opportunities, guys, for you to get involved in God's global mission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the story of Jonah, um, a cautionary tale of, Lord, that you discipline your kids. And uh, we're thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. I'm afraid of it, <laughs> but I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful that you would not let me go, that you would not let me be lost eternally but that if I become resistant to you, you'll do whatever it takes. And I thank you for that. I thank you that you're a God that rescues your people. And we thank you, God, that you're a God not just of one country, but you desire all nations to know you. We pray, Lord, that more and more you'd stir a passion for that in us. Help us to be a church, Lord, of going and sending. Lord, help us to be a people that are keeping tabs on your mission, are involved in your mission, are pushing forward your mission. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.